Arabia, around the world, and thank you for joining us once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter you.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca, jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. So great to be back. Counting the omen, my friend. I am counting it, but you know what? I think that because you're in a different part of the universe, we are probably a day, <laughs> we have a different day that we're looking at. I'm a uh, day ahead. Yes, you are. <laughs> How about that? But we're counting the omen. We had a wonderful Pesach. You, had a, you were traveling all over the countryside. Well, I was, I was back in the uh, U.S. of A. I was uh, down south, as we say here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was great. I saw family and friends, and uh, Passover was awesome. I always find, for myself, Passover is just about the most inspiring, energizing, spiritually important uh, holiday for me. Uh, personally, I really I connect with it on a very deep level. Um, I, mm. I, I just I always find every year, um, you know, I I learn new things and I appreciate new things and. Uh, you know, in, in, in Jewish consciousness, Passover is really, uh, it's the, almost the foundation of so much of the Torah. It's the foundation of our knowledge and understanding and faith in God. Uh, it's, it's rooted in that experience. It's a time when, uh, you know, the entire Jewish nation, all of the children of Israel became electrically aware of God's presence. That's how clear he was in his revelation. Mm. And uh, so Passover is a time of just getting in touch with that, of focusing on that experience. And so much of the Bible always teaches us to remember that you were slaves in Egypt and remember the day I took you out of Egypt. Mm. So one of the reasons is because it's really the, f- the foundation of our faith. And also it's the foundation of our ethical system because the Bible is constantly saying you know, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and therefore don't uh, mistreat the widow, the poor, the orphan, the poor, the mm-hmm. disenfranchised. You know how it feels to be oppressed. Don't you dare do it to someone else. Mm. Um, so it's a very, uh, for me, a very, very. Uh, I find it important to go through Passover, you know, deeply every year. And of course, mm. you know, we have a little taste of Passover every day because every day. You know, when the when the reciting of the Shema, the, the, the three paragraphs in the morning and the evening, we mention the Exodus from Egypt. And when I put my phylacteries on my head and my arm, it's written in those boxes. And, you know, it, it comes up so often every Shabbat, we say that this is in commemoration of the Exodus from Egypt. So it really, the, the, the Bible and Judaism never lets us get too far away from the Exodus story. But Passover, we sort of, we, we immerse into it. We change our whole diet. We clean our house. Everything mm. is just focused. It's so intense. It's like going to the gym. It's like <laughs> it's like going to a uh, you know a convention, a Passover convention for eight days here in the exile, and then we count forty nine days after it. We're just from we're just sort of launching ourselves from that moment. That, and every day counts, and we make every day count, and we grow. Mm. And so I just, I find myself very drawn to Passover. So I'm sad to see it go, um, but, you know, life goes on. <laughs> life goes on, and we'll see it again this time next year. So it's been a couple of weeks. I missed you, and I'm glad to have you back, my friend, because we are continuing to investigate the alleged 365 Messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, we got a comment last week. Actually, it wasn't a comment. It was from Carmen. She wrote a little uh, response to our last program. 
And uh, you may recall last uh, the last program we did that we mentioned that Carmen could have done better. I mean, the the, the uh, some of the examples that we went through in the last program was so um, perhaps the word to use is embarrassing. There was a bunch of clunk- bunch of clunkers, as we say. There was a bunch of clunkers, and we made the we made the uh, comment, or maybe I made the comment that Carmen could have done better uh, because what Carmen has done is she 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 took the list of three hundred and sixty five, or this is. This is what I've been saying. She took the list of 365, put it through the refiner's fire, and cut out about uh, 63 of them. And, uh, and, and with that in mind, I mentioned that she could have done better. Well, Carmen responded, and she said, this is uh, in her response, quote, Carmen Welker could have done better. Comments made on their latest debunking the Messianic Prophecy show, she says, uh, where I guess they were hinting at the fact that I could have culled the original 365 prophecies further. First, she goes on to say, I need to make a correction here. My husband, Bill, Bill is the one who could have done better because he is the one who meticulously went through the original 365 prophecies on my website and culled a lot of the original ones, which I had simply copied from some Christian site, admittedly without proofreading. It was Bill, she's got in capitals, Bill, not Carmen, who went through this whole list, culling it of duplicates, uh, duplicate Tanakh citations, which seemed unfair to be counted more than once. I informed Jono of this in an email, but he must have overlooked it. Uh, be that as it may, Van Dor and Skoback have been busy making a big deal out of our, quote, revised list ever since. Now... That's true. I do. I do recall Carmen. I do recall getting uh, reading that email. I do apologize, uh, saying that you could have done better. I, I I will correct that by saying, Bill, you could have done better, Bill. <laughs> Bill Bill is Carmen's husband, but uh, you know. I, I, but obviously, what he's done and what Carmen points out is. They didn't go through it to pull out the ones that were uh, clunkers, as you say. They went through it and pulled out the ones that were um, using the same citation twice, the ones that were repetitions. Uh, she goes on to say, regardless, here they are once again, you and I. Here we are once again. Thanking Carmen Welker uh, for use of my original article while, while debunking the messianic prophecy, saying uh, the same things that they're always saying, uh, that we don't know what we're talking about, while they, the Jews, obviously have all the answers. I, Carmen goes on to say, I have in various ways done what I could to, quote, debunk some of these things that they have espoused. But they continue to ignore them because, after all, according to them, I'm just another, quote, Christian who makes things up. Now, I'm not, I'm not too sure. We've done it. You and I, we've done a lot of programs. And I'm not too sure that we've ever referred to Carmen as a Christian who makes things up. Uh, I'm not too sure if that quote is fair. But she goes on to confirm, however, and you may recall that we mentioned this in the last program. She goes on to confirm that she does believe that the genealogy in Matthew is of Mary and that Luke's uh, genealogy is of Joseph, Mary's husband. And, uh, and she also mentions, in the meantime, many more will be pulled away from Yeshua and the New Testament, in part because of radio shows such as this one. So thank you, Carmen, for the encouragement. I think that's wonderful. And thank you for the correction as well. I do apologize. Bill, you could have done better, my friend. And perhaps one day you'll go through it again. It sounds like uh, the, the reverse of what happened in the Garden of Eden. There it was Adam who blamed his wife, and here it's no! the wife was blaming the husband. <laughs> That's right. Carmen's distancing herself a little bit from the list, saying, no, 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 it was Bill's fault. Bill did it. So, anyway, okay. 
My apologies, Bill. Your hard work. I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, give give others credit for your work, but that's uh, Bill's doing. Who took the original list of three hundred and sixty-five and put it through, through the, the refiner's fire, and and we're suggesting that he could have done a little bit better. Now we did get a, a an excellent comment from Vicky, and I'd I'd like to. This is just one of my. Now I get comments like this all the time, and they're they're short, uh, short and sweet. And thank you so much for comment comments from listeners on Facebook, uh, in in emails, uh, on the website that let me know uh, about your journey and and how Truth to You has helped you, and how Rabbi Michael Skoback and other guests have helped you uh, transition from from uh, the Christian world. Uh, into uh, a more Torah-focused faith, a, a, a refining of your faith. And this is what Vicky wrote, and I just thought this was wonderful. She said, Dear Jono, you have been instrumental in turning my world upside down in recent months, and I want to thank you for what you were doing through truth to you. I grew up a Protestant Christian from my childhood and ended up in the Word of Faith camp for a couple of decades. My husband and I, quote, inherited the pastorship of a church five years ago at about the same time that we were awakening to the fact that the Torah is still primary. We began keeping Shabbat and the feast to the best of our ability, and we shut down the church and started meeting in our home with others who wanted to become, quote, Hebrew roots people. Two years ago, our home group embarked on a chronological reading of the Bible together. It was going great until we reached the New Testament. All of a sudden, there was this abrupt change in everything she's got in capitals, everything we were reading, and it didn't match up to all we had just been reading in the Tanakh. We started asking a lot of disturbing questions and just couldn't find the answers. We finally kind of gave up on finding any answers and tried to settle back into the comfort of where we had been. This last December, another Hebrew Roots person began asking uh, us questions about Yeshua's credibility. I decided to go home and assemble a list of Messianic prophecies from the Tanakh. Uh, But when I sat down to do it, my mind just went blank. So I turned on my iPad and I decided to listen to the book of Isaiah. I knew there were some Messianic prophecies in there and I started in chapter 1. And everything was good until I got to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. I listened to the story of Ahaz and Isaiah. And when verse 14 came along, I thought, what the heck is this verse doing right here? (laughs) And I stopped and I went back to Isaiah chapter 1 and I listened all over again. And I listened to chapter 7 another five times. And I got out my Bible and read it for myself another five times. And I finally read to my husband and he was left scratching his head. And I decided to investigate online to see if others had found this strange as I did. And in my web search, your website came up with a podcast on Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 with, uh, with Rabbi Michael Skoback. And I thought, oh, I'm familiar with Jono. I've listened to him when, when he's had other Hebrew Roots te- uh, teachers on. I'll see what he has to say. Needless to say, I was surprised by what I heard on that podcast because I didn't expect to hear it on your website. Uh, But it was like this light was switched on and suddenly I saw things in a completely different light. My husband and I listened to all the preceding podcasts on debunking 365 messianic prophecies. We shared them with our extended family members who listened to them all intently. We began listening to Tobias Singer's podcast, whom we discovered through yeah, his visits on Truth To You. All of a sudden, all of our intense questions about the New Testament had very clear answers. And the Tanakh had new meaning to it, and now we need to reread it without our, quote, Jesus classes. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you for daring to step out and do what you are now doing. Our entire extended family feels set free from something to which we didn't even realize was holding us captive. The scriptures have come alive to us in a new way. If you ever felt uneasy about stepping out and debunking these prophecies, please know that my family is unspeakably grateful that you, uh, that you have stepped out. We are still contemplating where to go from here. We suddenly feel like we know so little about the Tanakh because we only knew it through the eyes of Christianity and Hebrew roots theology. Thank you for the role you've played in our present journey. There aren't enough words to, to express our gratitude. Sincerely, Vicky. Thank you, Vicky, so much. That's one of my favorite comments of all time that really did warm my heart. That's wonderful. You know, also, I, I, I would, if I had time, want to write you the same letter because I think that what you're doing on your programs on truth to you all of them you know it's a it's a full-time full-blown effort to just simply bring clarity and light to the world i think in a respectful way in an intelligent way and you know not pushing anyone just offering uh, people a chance to revisit things in the bible and theology and I, i really i admire you i think that you know your dedication to this you know, it's such a wonderful blessing to really so many people because you have access to the entire world on the internet, and I'm I'm really I'm very happy for Vicky and for all the people you know in her circles that have benefited from this. And I'm sure I get letters like this myself sometimes, and it's very heartening and encouraging. Mm-hmm. And I I always say to myself, you know what? Probably for every person that's bothering to write a letter like this there must be many that feel the same way but just for some reason mm. never bother to write or don't know who to write to or where to write so i i want to thank vicky for her encouragement because uh, it really it is wonderful to hear you know that this is not just learning that we're doing and studying that we're doing together that's going out into the ether and going up to some you know uh, planet in the distant parts of the galaxy, but there are real people that are listening, that are learning, uh, that are growing, that are changing. Mm. And uh, so I, I feel very touched and encouraged. And, uh, you know, and I think that it's great testimony to what you've been doing. And, uh, you know, I would say, uh, as we say in Hebrew, Yashar Koach, keep up the good work. And uh, God willing, you'll hear from many, many, many more people like this so thank you vicky and thank you jano thank you thank you vicky and and let me say really truth to you as i've I've often said truth to you is a soapbox it's nothing more than a soapbox and i i'm just the guy who 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 looks after the soapbox and i i take the programs and i edit them and i publish them but it is it is quality guests like yourself michael who make the program worth listening to and it's uh as vicky pointed out and so, thank you to you and uh, and other truths to you guests that that bless people like Vicky with the information. And it's a pleasure and a privilege, a great privilege of mine to be able to just take that information and just format it and make it available to people. So, thank you so much, Michael, and and to the other truths to you guests. And thank you, Vicky, who uh, give us encouragement like that and and uh, let us know the the wonderful journey that you're on and and how truth to you has uh, been a blessing may continue to be a blessing. And uh, in this program, we are, we're in the book of Daniel. I just think, by the yeah. way, that you're being a little bit too modest there with your description of what you're... No, doing. I'm not modest. No, I think that you're not just the person that uh, lets people get up on the soapbox. I think 
that you're an integral part of these programs, an active part of the programs, and I think that you are, play a much more critical role than simply wheeling out the soapbox for people to stand on. I think that your voice is there as well, and you know it's a group effort, and I think you're uh, you know the key player in this group, and so I want to just again thank you and bless you and uh, you know continued success and 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 efforts that you know should uh, just keep on going forth and just bringing more light and more clarity and more truth to the world god willing god willing if this i mean you know it, as long as people enjoy listening as long as they get something out of it as long as it continues to be a blessing god willing it, it will continue and i uh as i mentioned it is a great privilege of mine to be to be a part of this so uh it's a wonderful thing the now long-time listeners know michael if if uh, if my Bible if uh, if I was on a desert island and uh, and I had a copy of the Tanakh and it was missing the book of Daniel I I, I wouldn't be how shall I say this if I if there was a book <laughs> in the Tanakh that uh, that that I'm not the you know I'm not going to be waving the uh, I'm not buying the albums I'm not waving the banners I'm not going to the concerts it's probably the book of Daniel it's not my favorite book in the Tanakh. And I guess one of the reasons for that, perhaps it's because uh, having come from um, the church, being brought up as a Christian, uh, what Christianity has done to the book of Daniel, but also because there's a lot of confusion in the book of Daniel. There's a lot of uh, room for speculation. And I just find it easier to <laughs> avoid it because I think almost everything we, we need to know is found elsewhere in the Tanakh. What are your thoughts? Well, it is a hard, uh, definitely a difficult book for many reasons. The, the language, first of all, a lot of it's in Aramaic. Uh, the language is a little bit more difficult than the normal Hebrew, you know, because it's such an apocalyptic or at least prophetic book that's so uh, steeped in, in visions and imagery. That it is difficult to understand and interpret. And, you know, we'll be doing passages tonight that are, that are triply difficult because they require, you know, that you take off both shoes to do some of the math calculations. So it, it and it because it's so open to different kinds of interpretation, it's open to a lot of misinterpretation and uh you and know, there's no it, shortage of that as we'll see tonight. Oh yeah, it, it's it's certainly, you know, of all the the books in the Bible, Daniel, I would say, you know, there are a few that just challenge us in terms of trying to really penetrate the meaning the book of Job, Eov um, mm -hmm. also not an easy book, you know the, 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 it's interesting that when you study the Talmud there are 63 tractates in the Talmud so there are three um, that go by the abbreviation of Ani, Ayin Nun Yud Ani means poor um, mm -hmm. and they, they stand for the three tractates of Eruvin, Nida and Yevamot, which the tractates dealing with uh, uh, erecting sort of uh, uh, barriers or, or, or fences to establish uh, domains on Shabbat and Nida is the laws of uh, the ritual uh, purification Purity. of women who've mm -hmm. gone through their menstrual cycle and mm -hmm. Yavamo dealing with uh, people who uh, are going through this you know, very complicated procedure of having been married and then the husband dies without children and who does does the wife marry his brother that's left it, it, these are three extremely complicated uh, tractates in the Talmud and so I see uh, you know Daniel and Job as two of those books in the Bible that you know you really have to sort of 
uh, work extra hard at trying to understand. So I, I, I sort of sympathize with you on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I find Job a little bit, uh, maybe not easy to understand, but it doesn't seem to lead uh, to the wild speculation, uh, the spectrum of speculation that you get when, uh, when you look at the book of Daniel. Nevertheless, hopefully you, my friend, will offer some uh, clarity for us. This uh, program begins with, Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, which says, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. The iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from a summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that there was no trace of them to be found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, that apparently, according to the list, is a messianic prophecy. The corresponding New Testament verse is found in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Let it be known to all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. That, of course, is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. It goes on to say, Nor is there any salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven uh, given among men by which men must be saved. Now, the uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is stone cut without hands. That's what we have to begin with, Michael. Okay, that's, uh, <laughs> that's certainly an interesting and a provocative uh, claim. Um, you know, again, the assertion here is that this is a messianic prophecy. Now, why in the world someone would associate stone cut without hands, why does that become a messianic prophecy is beyond me. Um, even my hyperactive uh, open Bible does not consider this to be a messianic prophecy. Um, you know, it's an interesting chapter in Daniel because, you know, the king has this dream and he wants it interpreted, but he won't tell anyone the dream. He basically is requiring that people not only interpret the dream, but tell him what dream he had. Mm. And so no one's able to do it, but then Daniel, uh, you know, is is basically given sort of uh, inside trading information, a little birdie comes and tells him uh, the dream itself. You know, obviously God wanted Daniel to be able to intervene here. And so in this part of the chapter, Daniel is telling uh, the king what his dream was. Um, and so here he's basically, this, this is just not the interpretation of the dream yet. This is just part of the dream where this stone cut without hands will basically strike the image and crumble the image. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's almost impossible for me to see why someone reading that verse would, uh, would think that that was somehow a messianic prophecy. Um, you know, we don't really know what that verse is talking about at all. I mean, clearly no one on the planet knew what it was back then. Um, Daniel certainly didn't you know, know until God told him. Um, so we really will see in the interpretation of this image, of this, of this uh, prophetic dream, um, that it, it really is not referring to the Messiah himself, but it seems to be referring to the nation of God, the, the chosen people of Israel, that will rule in the Messianic age. So it is, 
uh, you could say, a messianic prophecy in that it's describing something that will take place in the messianic utopian future. Mm-hmm. But it's not really about the person of the Messiah. It's really about this kingdom that will be set up. And we're going to see that in the dreams uh, here, you know, that's the major theme of all these dreams are the major kingdoms that will exist mm-hmm. throughout history. But we know that there'll be, you know, sort of a final kingdom that will be set up, and that will be the kingdom presided over by the Messiah. Um, and we know the Messiah of Israel is the king of Israel. And so this is really referring to uh, the kingdom of Israel that will be the sort of ruling and presiding during the messianic future. And again, we'll, we'll see in a few minutes in the next uh, passage that, that is on this list that this is confirmed in verses 44 and 45. Um, when I looked at the New King James Study Bible, um, so it mentions here that the mountain um, is often a metaphor for a kingdom and it cites many, many verses in the um, Hebrew scriptures. And then it says, and it's confirmed in verse 44. So the New King James Study Bible seems to feel that this image is not about a person, but about a kingdom. Mm. Um, and it's uh, interesting to me that uh, the fulfillment of this is seen in Acts chapter 4, um, where there really is literally no connection at all between Acts 4 and this passage in Daniel. Acts 4 simply appeals to Psalm 118, as you pointed out, um, mm. which is this stone that, the, you know, that was rejected uh, and that became the chief cornerstone. Um, but th- there's, this is sort of just... Um, very imaginative to connect the stone in Daniel with the stone in Psalms. Um, you know, there's no nothing in Daniel that indicates that this is the same stone. Um, so, it, it, you know, when we talk about proof that Jesus fulfilled this passage in Daniel, we're really in very, very muddy water here because, number one, uh, it's very, uh, you know, not clear that this passage is even speaking about the person of the Messiah. It really seems to be speaking about the people of Israel. And it's not really clear how uh, anyone connects Jesus to this stone. So the passage in Acts um, really doesn't take us back to Daniel. It takes us to the book of Psalms. And again, there's no real proof. There's no way of establishing with any kind of clarity that this passage in Daniel has anything to do at all with Jesus. It's just, again, the New Testament is seemingly making a claim, um, and the claim has nothing to do with Daniel. So it, it's, to me, we're no, left it is, here. And, and it's quoting verbatim. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, Acts is quoting word for word uh, this verse, Psalm 118, verse 22. There is no connection to Daniel, but obviously yeah. the uh, the list maker uh, has asserted a connection because uh, in Acts 4, it mentions the word stone, and in Daniel chapter 2, it mentions the word stone. So let's make the connection, and that's all it is. And we've, we, we talk, I think we talked about that last week, and we've talked about it a number of times, that, uh, quote, messianic prophecies by the list maker is... Uh, quite often, if not more often, the uh, parallel of of uh, themes or words or phrases, and we're going to see that over and over again. And there's and and that's all the the, the connection uh, can offer. Well, it's very subjective, and again, there's nothing. What's important to realize is that there's nothing in the text which really warrants this kind of connection. Meaning that it's only works uh, because of the imagination of the list maker. And I would say. 
not just the imagination, but again, it's an imagination that's that's generated and that's pushed with an agenda. The agenda Mm. is to try and find these connections and these associations. But again, it only works backward, meaning it only works for the person who has already come to the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And then this becomes, I, I think it's an awkward and uh, you know, very, uh, not, not a very compelling connection, but it only works going backwards. Uh, there, there's no way in the world that someone starting out without a belief in Jesus would somehow go from this verse in Daniel and then hmm. magically you know, connect it to the uh, stone in Psalm 118, which is magically connected to Jesus, which right. went back to Daniel. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, as someone once said, you have to do quite a tap dance through Scripture mm. to arrive at this preconceived conclusion. Well, the next one is Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. It says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now, we've got three verses from the New Testament to parallel that, apparently, according to the list. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom of his kingdom there will, be, there will be no end. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Revelation chapter 15, verse 5 says, uh, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The messianic prophecy fulfilled, apparently, is his kingdom triumphant. Well, this basically is, you know, the the part B of the previous passage, because Mm -hmm. it's the the interpretation of the vision that Daniel provides the king with. And, you know, here it becomes pretty clear, I mean, it's overt that it's speaking about uh, a kingdom that's being set up. And this is... You know, for anyone that studies the book of Daniel, <clears throat> will know that it's a theme that is repeated many times. That there's going to be this future kingdom of Israel that's provi- presided over by the Messiah, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what Daniel says. The uh, reference to the stone cut without hands is referring to probably what it means is you know we, we think about the hands uh, as sort of human effort. And what it seems to be saying is that in the future, the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, which will include, we know this from Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter 37, it'll include the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, that all of this is going to happen not because of human effort. Um, all this will happen really only through the will of God, when God wills it to happen, and through God's might, through God's power, um, as it says in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6, right? It, it will not be achieved through military might or physical strength, but only through the will of God. And th- that's what it seems to be saying, that this establishment mm. 
of this ultimate future kingdom will be not through human hands, not through human effort, but through only through the uh, you know the, the the program and the, the the timing and really the the pushing it through by God Himself. Um, you know what? Can I can I just ask you something about that? I mean, yeah. what what comes to mind for me is uh, when when Moshe goes up on the mountain and God gives him two tablets of stone, stone cut without hands. These are uh, stones that are written uh, on by the finger of God, supplied by God Himself. Uh, Moses goes down and uh, there's the golden calf incident. He throws them, he smashes them before Israel. He grounds the golden calf and makes them drink and so on and so forth. Um, he goes later and we see that uh, God then tells him, you cut out stones. And now we do have stones that are uh, made with hands and God writes upon those and, uh, and, and they're the ones that go into the ark. Is, can anything be taken uh, from this in regards to this passage? That's a good question. <laughs> I, I didn't think of that connection, and it's interesting that um, since the second tablets were um, hewn by Moses' hands, uh, so you're not going to want to connect that to Daniel chapter 2, um, mm. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that, <clears throat> you, know, th- that uh, you know, we're opening up Pandora's box here. If we want to, you know, track down... Here we are in the spectrum of speculation (laughs) in the book of Daniel. (laughs) Why did I open my mouth? I don't know. But but that's just what came to mind. Well, but it's interesting because once we play this game of free association, imagine Mm. all of the references to stones uh, in the Bible. You know, know, the the imagery, you know, here, uh, mountains and stones and hands, you know, these are all over the place. And... Mm. You know, you can easily construct so many different uh, associations. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's sort of uh, anything goes in in certain ways. And that's why I think the safest way of um, interpreting these passages is by trying to stay as simple as possible and try to stay consistent with other passages in the book of Daniel. We're going to see that there's sort of a repeating theme that comes up throughout the book where... Um, you know, this sort of uh, analysis of world history and the different kingdoms that will uh, rise and exercise uh, dominion and, and power, but then they'll be knocked down and there'll be finally, you know, one major kingdom standing at the end, and we know that Scott's people be ruled by the Messiah. So I think that, you know, keeping interpretations in that consistent line keeps us safer um, rather than just coming up with wild associations to other things, but again, you know, everyone's entitled to their uh, opinion. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I, think- I I don't know. It's be, I mean, as I mentioned, Moses comes down with the with the tablets of stone uh, that were not made; they weren't cut with hands. He throws it down, which is uh, followed by the the crushing of the golden calf into powder, and we see here in Daniel chapter two. Uh, the the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together. It's uh, again we're in we're in the the realm of uh, speculating based on common themes, but I guess that's that's what uh, the book of Daniel, at least for me, lends itself to. Which I suppose it's not as concrete as I wish it was. Yeah, I mean, so many rocks, by the way, and stones were not cut by human hands. You know, you might want to jump the altar, to the, the stones of the altar were they had to be uh, uh, stones that were not hewn, right? Not by a, not by metal, right? Not mm. by metal. Metal being a symbol of war. Um, but you know, just in general, when you think about all the stones and rocks that we find around 
you know, most of them were not cut by human beings. Um, you know, think about the, what are the five stones that David picked up when he was about to fight Goliath. Um, oh, true, yeah. You know, maybe that was one of those stones not cut by a human hand that's going to topple the big, you know, big giant. Um, you know, because that's what happens in this story, right? There's a little stone mm. that, that smashes and crumbles this big image. And that's yeah, what happens. true. Goliath basically is crumbled by this one stone that hits him in the head. So, so y- true. You can, <laughs> you can really, you can go, you know, off on many, many different paths here. But again... You know, I, I would add into this story here. How do you get the Ten Commandment tablets into this story? They don't really derive naturally from the whole context no. of the book of Daniel. You know, the context really throughout the book is pretty consistent. Uh, it, you know, we, we know that the theme is the kingdoms of history, the major ruling kingdoms. Um, so I think that becomes the safest way of reading these passages. Mm. Um, what I find really, really puzzling and we've had this before, is that the list maker cites three different passages from the New Testament to prove the fulfillment here. But if we read them carefully, we'll see that they're not really fulfillment um, passages because they're all talking really about even Something the New that's Testament, going to happen in the future is ex- speculating. Exactly, meaning that these are things that have not happened yet. And these three passages speak about what they believe will happen in the future. Um, but to say that in the future, um, Jesus will reign and Jesus will have authority and Jesus you know, will have a kingdom, that doesn't prove that he's fulfilled it at this point. So to say that his kingdom is triumphant is not true. Now, for the list maker to say his kingdom will become triumphant, okay, but that hasn't happened yet. And that's something still that you can't check off as an accomplished um, prophecy. So again, so right? This would have to be relegated to the second coming, which would mean that it hasn't yet happened, and it shouldn't be on the list, like so many of the, <laughs> so many of these entries. Okay, Daniel chapter seven, verse thirteen to fourteen. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the son of man, one like the son of man, Michael, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancients of days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. The uh, corresponding verses in the New Testament, according to the list, Acts chapter uh, 1 verses 9 to 11. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him right out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come down, uh, will, will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven." So the uh, the messianic prophecy fulfilled, according to the list, he would ascend into heaven, Michael. Well, this is really a, a favorite passage of uh, Christian evangelists. And, um, you know, it's interesting that we have so many passages in the Bible that are not so simple to understand. And in the book of Daniel, you have, as far as I know, the only places in the entire Bible where we have the Bible 
having uh, someone come and literally help us understand the meaning of the passage. Um, so we're not left up to our own devices. You know, that doesn't happen in Ezekiel, as far as I know. It doesn't happen in Zechariah. You know, there are plenty of prophetic uh, visions in these other books, and you're left to, to really figure it out on your own. Uh, in Daniel, we have, you know, some very difficult to understand visions and prophecies. Um, and Daniel himself doesn't understand what's happening. Daniel himself is left scratching his head. And so what happens at least twice, as far as I know, in the book of Daniel, an angel comes and literally has to explain to Daniel what the meaning of his vision is. I'm so, gonna, uh, this is going to cause us a problem, no doubt. I'm going to interrupt you there for a second because this is one of my primary problems with Daniel is that uh, it, it seems that God supplies him with these visions and they're not clear enough for Daniel to understand. He's left puzzled, as you said. He's confused. He doesn't understand. And a messenger is sent. A messenger with – in Daniel, we have, we have angels with – we have messengers with names, which is confusing for me as well. But the, the, a messenger uh, comes and says to Daniel, ah, you're confused about it. It's okay. I've been sent to clarify it for you. He clarifies it. And as far as I know, and maybe you can correct me, but I don't think Daniel is any the wiser. Uh, certainly we're not. <laughs> I'm not anyway. I mean, what, what do you make of it? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the angel here does uh, clarify things. And it's interesting because this, the text itself tells us that Daniel was very puzzled by his vision hmm. um, in verse 15. It's, you know, he's le- it says he's left scratching his head in verse 15. So in verse 16, he asks one of the angels to interpret it for him. Mm-hmm. And then after the interpretation, it doesn't say that Daniel was still remained puzzled. So it seems to me, at least when I read the interpretation, I think I understand what it's saying. And it okay. seems that Daniel, you know, doesn't come back and say, well, wait a second, you haven't cleared things up for me. Um, so what happens is this. You have um, this vision where in verse 13 and 14, which we just read, mm. um, about this one like a man. It's in Aramaic. It's a bar and nash, um, literally a son of man. Mm-hmm. And what it says in verses 13 and 14 is that this son of man would be given dominion, glory, and kingship. And Daniel has no idea what it's talking about. So in the succeeding verses, um, the angel basically explains to him who is it that will be given dominion, glory, and kingship. So in verse 18, the angel says that the holy high ones will receive kingship. And then in verse 22, almost the same thing is said, that the holy high ones will inherit kingship. And then in verse 27, the angel says, kingship, dominion, and grandeur of kingdoms under the sun will be given to the high, the holy high ones. Its kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. So what we see here is that this one like a man is really not referring to an individual. It's the angel tells Daniel that this is really, uh, this one like a man is really representative or symbolic of a group of people, obviously here in a nation, a holy nation, who will receive the kingship and the dominion and the grandeur. And so one thing is clear, that it's not referring to one person. 
mm-hmm. this son of man. It's symbolic of an entire people. Now, who so is I have this? in uh, in the New King James, it says the the saints of the Most High, and you're referring to that as the holy high ones. Yeah, I mean, it, th- those are two different legitimate mm. translations. But yeah. the key thing is that it's not saint, but saints. No, that's right. Yeah, it's plural, of course. And so the question is, who is this nation that's going to be given this? kingship, this dominion, this grandeur in the future. And so, again, we want to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. Um, the, the message seems to be, not just in the book of Daniel, but the message throughout all of the prophetic books, books is that in the future, the Messiah will preside over, he'll be the king of Israel. And mm. so, there's this constant, and it's, it comes up so many times, that Israel will be as we saw in Isaiah 53, exalted, lifted up, and raised very high. That's mm. how chapter 52 ends. And so this is a constant theme of Scripture, that there is a glorious future awaiting the Jewish people, and that will happen in the Messianic age. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that is the simplest way of understanding this passage. And after Daniel is given this interpretation, he is not left scratching his head. So well, it says, let me say, I mean, it says, he says in, in verse 28, uh, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So what, what you're saying is that he, he is enlightened here uh, and, and that's why he's greatly troubled and his countenance changed rather than uh, him remaining confused. Well, it, it could be many reasons why he's still bothered. Um, he seems to understand what it's speaking about. But when we see, well, we'll get to um, the ninth chapter, mm-hmm. we're going to see that there are things that are bothering him. Because if he's being told here by the angel that there's this great future awaiting the Jewish people, um, which he knows because that's one of the themes of prophecy, um, one of the questions that is going to be bothering him is, well, when is this going to happen? And we're going to see that that's agitating him in the ninth chapter. Mm, um, mm. What I would say is that, you know, you'll find that there are Jewish commentaries who say that this uh, son of man is speaking about the Messiah. You know, in the same way that we saw that the simplest understanding of Isaiah 53, because the, it, the clear and consistent message of Scripture is that the servant of God is the nation of Israel, and, but the rabbis, in their homiletic interpretations, said that it's referring to the Messiah in the sense that Messiah is the king of Israel and represents the entire nation. And so um, Rashi here says that this is talking about the Messiah. At the same time, Rashi says it's speaking about Israel. He actually gives both interpretations. Mm-hmm. Because, again, you can't separate them. It's not as if the Messiah is a figure who's some mysterious personality that's not connected to the nation that he is the head of. He is the king of Israel. Hmm. And so what I would say is that even if uh, a Christian wanted to insist that this passage is speaking about the Messiah um, who would ascend into heaven, um, again, it doesn't prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, There'd be no reason to assume he is because uh, this has not happened. He has not been given kingship and grandeur and kingdoms you know, unless you totally spiritualize these ideas, mm. in which they really mean nothing, 
And mm. it's also important to say that this passage is not telling us that the uh, nation of Israel, or the Messiah, if you will, will be literally uh, taken up into heaven. Um, it's important to remember that this is a dream, and this is dream imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, simply, you know, taken up to heaven really refers to uh, the idea of appearing before God to receive a message or mm-hmm. to receive some blessing. Um, God is not in heaven. <laughs> that that's unfortunately that's a very juvenile uh, concept to think that God is up there in heaven. You know, God is not in a place. God is not physical. And so uh, it's very easy to, you know, read this as, um, you know, as a school child would read it, to think about God being up in heaven and this Son of Man being taken up into heaven. Um, I don't think that it's, you know, necessary to read this in that kind of hyper-literal way because, again, it is dream imagery. On the same uh, passage, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, uh, it also, uh, this, the list uh, parallels to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 to 22, which says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above the principalities and power uh, and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he will put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. According to the list, uh, this is a messianic prophecy fulfilled and highly exalted. That's, that's the messianic prophecy fulfilled according to Ephesians. Well, this is, a, I would say, an example of double and then triple dipping because, um, you know, we have number 248, 249, 250, basically all appealing to the same idea. Um, and again, what I would say is that this um, really is not clearly talking about the Messiah. The, the strong evidence is that it's really speaking about the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. And the, the, really, the only fulfillment here is that the New Testament seems to uh, insist that it somehow applies to Jesus. But there's no objective empirical way of really of verifying this. It's simply... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, a, f- a fulfilled prophecy because I say so. Because the New Testament we say so. says so, and it, it it doesn't stop there. The same passage again is paralleled with Luke chapter one, verse thirty-one and thirty-three. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. And speaking of Isaiah chapter seven, fourteen, as we were just a while ago from Vicky's comment, and behold, you you shall uh, conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. Uh, shall call his name Jesus, and will he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end, and according to the list, that uh, Messianic prophecy fulfilled is that his dominion would be everlasting. But again, hasn't happened. Right. I mean, all that we have in the book of Luke is this uh, anticipation that, you know, what will happen in the future. Um, so even according to Luke, this is something that has not yet happened. It's something that Luke is saying will happen. And so we don't really see prophecy fulfilled here. We just simply see the New Testament making the claim that what Daniel is speaking about will be fulfilled um, with the ultimate kingdom of Jesus, um, which again hasn't happened. Mm. Um, so again, you know, all of these, I think there were three of them here, are basically appealing to 
not something that Jesus has done. Um, it's, it's basically saying that Jesus will fulfill these prophecies in the future, but that's very different than saying this is messianic prophecy already fulfilled. Okay. Uh, Now we're in Daniel chapter 9, my friend. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy corresponding verse according to the list is uh, galatians chapter 1 verse 3 to 5 grace to you and peace from god the father and our lord jesus christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our god and father to whom be the glory forever and ever amen the uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list michael is to make an end to sins well do you know what i say <laughs> what do you say <laughs> i say that i i think we'd be wise to make a break at this point um because uh, these three verses in daniel chapter nine mm-hmm. will take at least an hour <laughs> seriously um at least there's going to be a part two of daniel there's a part I think, that I think you it's just gonna, left everyone's hanging on the edge of their seat now they're going to be doing that for a week I because think it's uh, have to be because if we're going to finish daniel chapter nine i'm saying that it will take at least an hour now it depends yeah, on how right. depends daniel on how chapter nine is daniel chapter nine is a program in and of itself in fact uh each of these you could probably do an hour on but we won't But uh, let's leave those ones until next week. Daniel chapter 9, we'll do Daniel part 2, because these really are, uh, these ones here are ones we can really sink our teeth into. Well, again, I think that to to even try and cover that in an hour is going to be ambitious. What I'm going to try to do, I mean, I've already done it. I mean, I I planned it all out already, but I I think that it can be done in a way where it's streamlined and we're not going to try to be comprehensive. You know, when I was way on Passover, I read a book by my friend Jerry Siegel. It's an entire book on these three verses in, in Daniel. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's enough to make your head spin. So to, to, co- to cover it comprehensively, um, we can't do. I'll tell you the major problem. Go on. Um, the major problem is really trying to work out the, the dating mm-hmm. uh, for many reasons. Number one, um, you know, what are the dates of these events? You know, for example... Many Christians will insist that the um, counting of these 70 weeks begins with the decree by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just sort of assert, well, that was 444 BCE. Well, is that true? I mean, <laughs> maybe it's 445 or 443. Mm-hmm. So one problem is trying to you know, determine what date certain things actually happened for another one. When was Jesus crucified? Was it 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 33. 28? No one knows. Mm. Um, so that's one problem. Another problem is that there's a 160-year differential between the secular dating system and the, and the traditional Jewish dating system. So when was this, the first temple destroyed? So historical sources will say 586 BCE, and Jewish sources will say about 420 BCE. Mm-hmm. So, you have so many problems with trying to work through these calculations that if we were to try to do it, 
we would spend you know weeks on this. Trust me. Right. So I'm going to have to try and do it in a way where we streamline it, and we just touch. Rather than looking at it as, let's say, a comprehensive class on these passages in Daniel, what I'm going to try to do is simply address the claim that is being made uh, in as succinct a way as possible without having to get into all of the gory details about how to work through these um, these the dates. Gory details. <laughs> oh, it, 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 it can make your head spin. Yeah. And I, I think that you know it would just go on forever and we'd lose people. But I think that rather than taking the approach that we're going to set the record straight on exactly how to read this chapter in Daniel, you know that would be very ambitious. We could mm. do it. But I think that the simpler thing to do is to have the agenda of this is a claim that's being made and how are we going to critically question the claim that's being made. Mm. Um, I don't have to prove my case. I don't have to... Um, you know, show that I have a better reading of Daniel. I'm just going to mm-hmm. question, you know, it, does their claim hold up? Um, That's what we're going to do. That's a now, good idea. But one of the problems is that, you know, just jumping into verses 24 to 26 sort of ignores the context of this chapter. Mm-hmm. And so maybe when we just sort of briefly make that point and talk about the context of the chapter really what's going on here so to the bigger picture will be maybe to uh, give an outline of what's really happening yes um, without going into too much of the technical details all right let's that that is a challenge in and of itself to uh, try and squeeze all of that into an hour but we definitely need to dedicate uh, the next program to Daniel chapter 9 we will break here and we'll leave everybody hanging on the edge of their seat and uh, because next week is really going to be uh, really going to have some fireworks and have some stuff that we can sink our teeth into thank you Rabbi Michael Skoback of JewsForJudaism.ca JewsForJudaism.ca JewsForJudaism in Canada for coming back onto the program after a couple of weeks break my friend I missed you I missed you and I am so happy to be back it's wonderful to have you it'll be wonderful again to further the book of Daniel next week until then dear listeners be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word Shalom Shalom